This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A major development in a decade-long dispute over Evi at Kauaihau Church. Remains of some 600 sets of remains, or Evi, that were dug up during construction of a church hall remain in the church basement. But for how much longer? In an emotional meeting of the Oahu Burial Council last week, lineal descendants agreed to try one last time at Ho'oponopono, the process of reconciliation. The family representatives uh, presented a final burial treatment plan to the the council, and it agreed to put it up for a vote next month. But descendants also put the church and the council on notice that they plan to take possession of the EV come March 9th. Here's Kamuela Kala'i, one of the lineal descendants who filed a lawsuit against the church some nine years ago. We are now at a point where we're going to assume our full kuleana and responsibilities to our kupuna. The burial treatment plan basically calls for returning the kupuna to as closely as possible from where they were taken out of their graves. And then the other piece is we are asking to sit down with the church and see if we can really work together to make this pono for the kupuna. First thing that we have to do is take an inventory of the kupuna. They've been sitting in the basement of the church for over nine years, some of them. The basement is dark, dank, musty, so we don't know Dampness is not good for bones, right, or anything. So we don't know what kind of condition. So that's part of the reason why we want to, we want to get them out of there and we want to malama them because they may need to be cleaned and rewrapped, and that's what we want to do. We, as descendants, will be going to the church on March 9th to take possession of the kupuna. And like you said, whether that happens or not, well, will be largely determined by the church. They might call HPD. Hopefully, before we even get to March 9th, we will have we've sat down at a table and we've tried to work out some ho'oponopono. Church trustee Bill Haoli says that there have been other cases where descendants have taken possession of Ibi Kupuna and moved them to other cemeteries, but the declaration of a deadline is raising some eyebrows. In the past, many were disinterred by the Ohana and moved to uh, Kamuili Ili Church which is in Ewo'ili'ili. But then when they developed that land, all of those were brought back to Kwaiau Church. You know, and so we, it's not unprecedented, but we just, need, we just need to, before we release it, to be clear exactly where the Ibi Kupuna are going. They've been in our care, you know, since 2008. And yes, we, we are very much attached to them because they are our owner. They requested and chose to be buried in our cemetery. They're part of our ecclesia, uh, our church. We are attached to the I'm hurt that they want to take them away because we care so much for them. But I understand. The church's leadership team and legal counsel are expected to meet tomorrow to discuss what the next step will be. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd, honolulumuseum.org. The coronavirus is putting China's surveillance tools to the test. Checkpoints, cameras, and tracking techniques, like one perfected in the Muslim Uyghur region, Barcodes posted on people's homes. They go and scan the QR code in front of your door and the police can have your name, your age, every information they want. A Uyghur activist speaks out on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from Sacred Hearts Academy, a private school for girls in grades preschool through high school, where the focus is on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Learn more at sacredhearts.org. 
February is National Indigenous Language Month, and here in the islands, we honor the Hawaiian language, Olelo Hawaii. Here to talk about it is HBR's Ku'uve Hiraishi. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Aloha kakayaka, I should say. <laughs> uh, Hawaiian language. So we took a look uh, pretty much all month at how Olelo Hawaii, your Hawaiian language, has reached this uh, point of having uh, revitalized itself uh, to a point where there are a lot of speakers and we're asking a lot of questions about how we move this forward. And uh, one thing that we looked at this week was the Olelon Ihau, so the Hawaiian language that's spoken by folks from Ihau that is spoken, uh, continues to be spoken on Ihau, and that's distinctively different from the Hawaiian language you'd hear coming from university classrooms or Hawaiian language uh, immersion schools. I should say as a disclaimer that I am a graduate of the Hawaiian language uh, immersion school. And so my style or dialect of Olelo Hawaii uh, fits sort of that mold. And it's different from those, uh, the language coming out of Nihau. And I wanted to play some of, um, from a Manale or a native speaker, Lawa'e Kanahele of Nihau. This is actually an interview I did about trash when we were looking at trash on Kauai. I ran into her and I was able to kind of ask her uh, questions about the trash story, but she did it uh, in Olelon Ihau. Here's a little bit of that. Bani Ihau, loa ano ketei apana aindai e tiroi e to opala. Ano like no me taua inei, loa ano ta wahi tiroi opala o yano marke kaha, peat ano taia e transfer station. So in there, you can hear it's a lot faster paced than uh, my, I guess, my Olelo Hawaii would be. And uh, maybe not choppy, but it, she has these breaks in them, right, where she goes ups and downs. But also the T's and the R's uh, in places of, of K's and L's. And that has an interesting history that I was able to um, kind of get into with a Hawaiian language scholar, Kao Smith, up at UH Manoa, uh, who had said that uh, when the missionaries first came, they would hear the Olelo Hawaii being spoken by everyone on Kua'i and Iho and O'ahu, and they couldn't figure out, it was so complicated to them, when to use the T's or the R's in places, in the place of K's and L's. And so what they ended up doing was saying, okay, we're just going to make a decision here. We're going to create a standardized alphabet system. We're going to cut out the T's and the R's and just put, you know, K's and L's. And that writing system survived, and uh, the T's and R's were not a part of that in the written system. Right. So that's in the written system. So what you have on Iho is uh, this continuous transmission of the language of the spoken language with the T's and the R's, there was no break in that transmission because they've been able to keep the Olalhova'i intact on island. Um, but when it came to things like the Hawaiian Immersion Program, but also university classrooms where we really didn't have the continuous transmission of spoken Olalhova'i, we would look to these primary source documents, all the Hawaiian language newspapers of the time, um, and they had K's and L's. And so in trying to um, bring that back, it's hard to understand because a lot of uh, the spoken language wasn't there to provide that context for us. So on uh, Ni'ihau, in fact, and speaking to another manale, Tuti Kanahele, um, she, a native speaker, she had said that she would go to church and she would open up the Bible and uh, there were no T's and R's, but she understood by looking at it where you would put a T and an R because she learned how to speak through her grandparents and her parents. So that difference in the written system versus the spoken system is kind of at the heart of the differences in the dialect. But is it all T's and R's and K's and L's or just some? Exactly. So that's, <laughs> that's the tricky part. In some instances, the word kako, uh, which is what I would say and what you are taught in the university classroom on Iho, they say kato. So there's still oh. a K and a T. And so f- that's part of why it was uh, confusing, I think, for, for missionaries when they first got here to figure out, okay, when do I put the K in? When do I put the T in? So there are uh, several rules, but there are also exceptions to those rules. Uh, but the Hawaiian uh, language, at least the one that is uh, spoken on Ihau, is being uh, taught in a university classroom here uh, on Oahu. So we do have uh, efforts to spread the Olalon Ihau and also at the uh, Kula Oni'ihau of Kekaha on Kauai, where the next generation of Ni'ihau children are learning their dialect. Um, 
And so in speaking to Tuti Kanahela, kind of getting off track here, as she had mentioned, so she teaches Olalo Hawaii uh, here at uh, Windward Community College. But she had mentioned that part of the difference or, or some change that she's seeing with the younger generation of neat house speakers is uh, sort of this, not encroachment of English, but English is making its way into their into their lives a, a lot more than in the past. And you can think of social media or just technology and being a, having English available to them uh, a lot more frequently. And she's sort of worried uh, about the implications in terms of maybe it might change the way that they speak because their thinking is sort of you know, mold, being molded by uh, the English-speaking world. Here's uh, Tuti Kanahele. O kia olelo Hawaii kako he olelo kia nana kako i aomaye ko kako ano he Hawaii. A ale naka olelo haole i aomaye kako kela na ko kako olelo pono i i aomaye kako kia manao Hawaii. Ina ale kako maka ala na lo wale ana kela oya kau e kanalua nei. So here she's speaking about uh, how she she thinks that the the main driver, the main you know hokeo in Hawaii, let's see, uh, uh, the main transmission of uh, the Olalo Hawaii is really transmitting what it means to be Hawaiian. And so for her, if that's lost, if that transmission of Olalo Hawaii is is transmitting uh, what it means to to live in a war in an English speaking world, then she's afraid that the next generation might lose that sort of mindset or, or way of thinking. Um, but she continues to speak it, and she has tries as much as she can with her children to continue speaking the dialect. But they have moved to Oahu. They, they'll use it when, it, when, it, uh, when it's convenient, but they, they aren't sort of adamant, you know, keepers of, of the olelo. Uh, Keone Smith, that Hawaiian language scholar we were talking about earlier, he had mentioned because the question will often come up as, uh, you know, which one, which one's more more authentic? Which Olalo Hawaii should we take as the Olalo Hawaii? And um, for Kiao, at least for Mr. Neesmith, uh, it's a matter of understanding that their the language on the Ihao has not left their tongues, and so we should be looking to them as a source, uh, at least as a source of reference when we try to uh, bring back the language and help it grow. Here he is. Kela po e ohana a ole i moku, a ole i wehe i a ka olelo mi alako mai kela ka po e akako e nana koe. Uh, and no loko mai ka, ka, ka lumi papa ne oi hili na iwale no oi i kapuke mehemela kapuke kamea pololei kamea oi io Right. So here he's talking about uh, how that that unbroken chain was in place and how we should really be uh, not sort of trying to standardize the language as it comes out of the university classrooms or Hawaiian language immersion schools, but really include and try to intertwine a lot of what uh, those on Ihao are speaking into that, into that curriculum. Interesting. Fascinating, actually. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR's Ku'uvehirishi talking about the native Hawaiian language as we mark Olelo Hawaii Month. Support for The Conversation comes from Matson, celebrating the first of four new ships designed and built for its Hawaii service, and supporting HPR One's news coverage from around the world. Matson.com. Our reality should check today with Honolulu Civil Beat has a story centering around fears for the future through the eyes of four Hawaii governors. Political and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Aloha. Good morning, Catherine. So uh, tell us about the story, because this is part of a series that you folks have just launched, right? Right. In fact, let me just briefly mention that. We're calling it the Fault Lines Project. It, it, we started it last month. We're going to be running it 
all year long. And basically, we're trying to get people talking. How do we find common ground to move forward as a society? As you know, there's been a lot of divisive issues. Uh, TMT, to name one, rail, to name another, uh, in the news lately. We're looking at writing about leadership, writing about Native Hawaiians, what communities are doing out there to change for the better. And just one other thing, we're also holding events uh, statewide, trying to get people involved. So this very first story, Back to Leadership, that's what this story is about. And Kirsten Downey, our reporter, interviewed uh, four of the five living governors, George Arioshi, John Wahe'e, Ben Cayetano, and Neil Abercrombie. Uh, Linda Lingle declined to cooperate. But the other four govs, what they had to say is they're really worried about the direction that Hawaii is going. They're worried about social economic divisions, problems that we're having, and, and mainly they all think there's a lack of leadership to resolve these very serious divisions. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, Mauna Kea, and we have seen right. the mobilization of uh, the Hawaiian community, uh, not just here in the islands, but abroad even. Right. And one thing that this story does is it takes a real historical perspective. And remember, you know, Wahe, John Wahe is 73 now, I think. And then uh, Neil Abercrombie and Ben Cayetano are in their 80s. And then Governor Ariyoshi is 93. So these gentlemen have seen quite a lot, uh, including the birth of the Hawaiian Renaissance movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kalama Valley, the Koholawe, any number of issues pertaining to not only just Native Hawaiians, but people in Hawaii in general. And so they have this sort of unique perspective about where we were, uh, where we've gone, and where we should be going now. They've noted also that we don't seem to be as progressive socially as we used to be. Remember, this is a state that had uh, the Prepaid Health Care Act passed back in 1974. Uh, All of them in one way or another were involved, either in the legislature or whatever position they were holding then. So they're basing what they see going forward based on what they have done in their own lives, their own accomplishments, and and frankly, in some areas where they fell short. Yes, I, you know, talk about diversity because, you know, we have the first uh, Japanese uh, uh, governor, first Filipino governor, first Hawaiian governor, and first Hippie Howley Governor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although I think Governor Abercrombie has since finally cut his hair. But yeah, one of the great things about Kirsten's story today, and it's up on our lead story right now, is some vintage photos from back in the day, including Neil Abercrombie with very, very past shoulder length hair, big full beard. There's even a photo of him shirtless. And because remember how he lifts weights? Yeah, yes. I think he still lifts. Well, he's got some pretty serious guns on there. <laughs> but there's also photos of Ben Cayetano. I don't know if if you remember. Remember when he had a Prince Valiant haircut yes, back in the course. day? <laughs> yeah. And so that photo's in there as well. There's George Ariyoshi pedaling a bike while he was campaigning. And I think that really also kind of captures uh, a flavor because Kirsten's really taking a, a a, a brief look at the last 50 or 60 years, you got to talk about Jack Burns, the first Democratic governor. You got to talk about the Big Five uh, and things like that. But uh, mostly it's focused on where are we going now? You know, we mentioned Mauna Kea, but remember the protest in Kahuku and Waimanalo. Uh, there's current issues like preschool and minimum wage that are being debated at the legislature, and yet we've been debating these for decades. Uh, one other concern is tourism. Are we going too fast? Um, too soon, uh, too expensive a place to live. I think that's kind of the bottom line. Why does it cost so much t- to live here? How can we keep our folks from moving away? Right. And there's, you know, a lot of uh, issues around the environment with climate change. And I, I know Ariyoshi was a big environmentalist in his day. He was, and he was also instrumental in trying to find new ways to to develop the economy. Remember the Natural Energy Lab Hawaii Authority, the Nelha, they're on the Big Island high tech and looking for new ways to develop revenue streams. So these gentlemen have been involved in a lot of different areas. But what you're hearing from them is kind of a the same, frankly, dour message. Uh, Neil Abercrombie actually uses the words disillusionment and demoralization when he talks about voters. Ben Cayetano says there just seems to be a lack of optimism for the future. Uh, Governor Waihe'e he actually detects what he describes as a seismic shift, or that's in Kirsten's language, uh, in the uh, the economic stories that we're having, the challenges that we're facing. And Ariyoshi, but can you believe it? He's actually working on a book, age 93, on how Hawaii can get back on track. So while they have uh, frustrated, they're frustrated about where we're going, they're also trying to come up with solutions and how we can get back 
back together and move forward. I'm really sorry that uh, Governor Lingle didn't participate as the first woman, uh, you know, and a Republican to boot. Right. I th- that would have been a very welcome. She is mentioned in the series. I know Kirsten did try and reach out to her. But the fact that these other four governors, all Democrats, gave her extensive time, I think illustrates how seriously they consider uh, their public positions and their concern for the state. She did not talk to Governor Ige, by the way. We thought we'd hold off on him because he's still in office right now. Uh, but it's a pretty impressive lineup. And the fact that they gave so much of their time to talk at length, I think in Neil Abercrombie's case, I think she, he sat down for three hours. Of course, knowing Neil Abercrombie a little bit, I guess that's no surprise. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not hard he's to do with Neil. Yeah, let, well, just one more point and, and so forth. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully uh, we can hear from Governor Lingle and Governor uh, David Ige as well. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Read the Fault Line series online at civilbeat.org. I'm Robert Siegel. Coming up on the next On Point independent bookstores aren't just back, they're thriving. As other small retailers struggle to compete with big box stores and online shoppers, indies have found a way to attract and hold on to a loyal base of customers. We'll discuss their secrets to success and the role of community in their survival that's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. This afternoon at 2, following the world. We have a couple of stories for you as we come off of the President's Day holiday. You know, leading up to the APEC conference in Honolulu in 2011, there was lots of talk of world leaders donning aloha shirts in their native home. There had been a precedent. Previous conferences included family photos of the dignitaries in matching clothes from the host country, like ponchos in Chile. But when the time came for Hawaii to host the the, uh, 20-some world leaders war, Dark suits, except for then Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who wore a white jacket. While Tory Richards gave them all aloha shirts, President Barack Obama said it was up to each individual to wear them. No one donned them for the picture. And while Obama may not be the biggest fan of aloha shirts, there was one president who took up the fashion on his working vacations in Florida. Uh, Kirsten Stalling is the museum curator, curator of the Harry S. Truman National Historic Site in Independence, Missouri, which includes the home he shared with his wife, Bess. It includes over 60 sports shirts, four of them aloha shirts from Hawaii manufacturers. She spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about the collection. President Truman um, was always a pretty spiffy dresser. In his early days, he owned a haberdashery, which is a men's clothing store in Kansas City for about a year or so, and so was always very particular about the way he looked. He, had, he knew several tailors that made custom suits for him through the years, and so that continued um, through up, up and through his vice presidential period. Granted, he was only vice president for less than three months when Franklin Roosevelt passed away. So when he became president, he was kind of thrust into the limelight, and there were some, some comments about his clothing generally, but for the most part, you know, he was a nice dresser, wore dark suits. Um, He did like to wear a bow tie now and then, but that was the only place that he could really show kind of his personality because, like I said, most of his suits were dark blue, black, brown. You know, he might have a pinstripe, but nothing really crazy. So he did like to throw on a splashy tie, But it wasn't until he got to Key West and and a couple of years into his working vacations down there that he adopted these colorful sport shirts. When he first started going um, in 1946 was the the first time that he took a working vacation to Key West. He really, he he began to adopt the, the local clothing, but he really was still pretty conservative with it. So you'll see pictures of him wearing um, a tucked in long sleeve shirt, but with the sleeves rolled up and no coat. And then after that, you'll see a sport shirt with short sleeves, but it's still tucked in. And so there was kind of a progression. And then eventually you see him with, you know, shirt tails out, short sleeves, but still uh, in the photographs, you can tell that they are solid, light colored shirts. If there's a pattern, it's very conservative. That went on through 1947. And then in 1948 was when kind of the turning point happened. And there was a 
uh, Miami-based sportswear uh, manufacturer, the, and the president, his name was Ben Bloom, and he was with Royal Sportswear, Royal Palm Sportswear. He sent Truman um, four shirts that what he called the Florida style, and all four of them had, had bright, crazy patterns on them. And he wasn't even sure if Truman would wear them or not. But he thought, I, you know, I see him receive other gifts of, of different various things, and I would like to see if, you know, he would enjoy these. So he sent them, and sure enough, the next couple of days, Truman began wearing them and was photographed in them, and those pictures went out really across the nation. So everybody got to see uh, Truman wearing these sports shirts. And so it was, it was probably pretty shocking initially for people to see that. But uh, that really encouraged other companies after that to send him additional shirts. And, and the other thing that's coinciding with this is just the, the rise in popularity of these sports shirts. I mean, men's sportswear had come about in the 30s, but, you know, it was kind of a gradual progression. And really, like the Aloha shirt, for instance, that, was, that term was coined like in the late 30s. And that had a lot to do with travel that was becoming more accessible to Hawaii. So you have those sort of influences that are spreading. So by the 40s, you have a lot more people having access to, the, to those shirts. You also have, you know, military stationed in the area. And so that helped with that dissemination of, of new ideas and, um, for the shirts. So um, by, the, you know, by the 40s, especially the, the late 40s when the war was over and people weren't restricted by, you know, rationing and fabric restrictions and those sorts of things, a lot of clothing kind of exploded, you know, the, like much more flamboyant became popular after the war. So you'll see people like Truman. I know uh, Bing Crosby also was known for wearing tropical shirts. So it was kind of a, a popular thing that was growing at that time anyway. For him, I think he just, he happened to be president at the right time. And yeah. I think he kind of helped popularize it along with the celebrities that wore them. But on the flip side of that, he definitely, he did have his critics <laughs> uh, for, for adopting that clothing style. There were some opinion writers at the time that felt like seeing, you know, the president of the United States on a beach in a, you know, wild sports shirt and his swim trunks was not in keeping with, with what he should be doing as the president of the United States. Um, but I think by the, you know, by the early 50s, after he had been taking these vacations for several years and the pictures were out in the public, that the, the general public was okay with it. So I'm assuming he never wore it at the White House, just over in Florida. Correct. That is my understanding. And um, when the Trumans came home um, back to Independence after his presidency was done in 1953, they brought all of their belongings with them, and one of those things was a trunk, and it was full of these sport shirts. So that's how we now have 64 sport shirts in our collection. They appear to have been folded up and put in this trunk and put up in the attic, and never touched again. So, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't wearing the shirts in Washington, and he didn't come home after his presidency in retirement and wear them around Independence, Missouri. And to your knowledge, the sports shirts, they were all donated, gifted to President Truman? That's my feeling. Um, it's hard to pinpoint. When I was doing my research, I was trying to determine, you know, when he went to Key West, did he, did he or his people go out and specifically buy shirts? for him to wear while he was down there, or did most of these come as gifts from, you know, fans and sportswear manufacturers and, and, and people like that? And, and I feel like for the most part, he just received so many of these shirts that he didn't probably ever need to go out and buy his own. Yeah. Um, most, of, most of the time, like a lot of the letters that we have will say something like, you know, we like to send you five of the latest style, you know, so they were sending him multiples each time he went down there. And he went about twice a year. Um, he went 11 times between 1946 and 52 down to Key West. So that's quite a few shirts and probably too many for him to, to wear while he's down there, uh, perhaps, or maybe he didn't like all of them that he received, but he did share with his staff, um, his staff that went down there with him during these working vacations. Uh, he would, pass these out and they would be able to wear them. They had loud shirt contests. Um, they always took kind of a class picture while they were down there. Um, everybody 
you know, seated together all in their tropical sport shirts, which is kind of fun to see. And even they would pass them out to the press that, that would travel down there with them. And so when they would have press conferences, some of the images of those you'll see, the photographers wearing the shirts and the staff and Truman, everybody's, you know, adopting the, the local dress. And it ended up being called the Key West uh, uniform. Did he ever give a reason to why he relented that, or, you know, kind of just adopted the style because he seemed resistant at first? Did he ever write anything or say anything about it? I've never come across anything like that. I think it was more of a natural progression. I don't necessarily know that he was resistant to it. I just think the opportunity hadn't presented it him, it, itself to him yet. So if, if someone had sent him these shirts in 1946, perhaps he would have adopted, adopted them sooner. But, you know, it could be that early on in his presidency, he was trying to be a little bit more careful about the way he was presenting himself until he kind of got his feet wet and then felt a little more comfortable uh, showing his true colors, so to speak. Uh, like I said, he did have, you know, quite the personality and did enjoy the fun of, like, a crazy necktie and, you know, that sort of thing. So I don't think it was beyond the realm of possibility that he would just jump right into something like this. The only other thing that I thought was interesting, the Trumans did take a Hawaiian trip after the presidency. So when they got back home, no doubt they needed a vacation and so they took a trip in March and April of 1953 to Hawaii, and they had some friends that Truman had worked with over the years in political circles that uh, lived out there. So they went out and spent some time out there. And so some of those pictures, you can also see him wearing uh, the sports shirt. So he did take, take them with him to that trip, and so you'll see him with the sports shirts and sandals and that sort of thing in some of those images of that trip. That was Kirsten uh, Stalling, the museum curator of the Harry S. Truman National Historic Site. The sport shirt collection that she talked about, which includes four Aloha shirts from Hawaii manufacturers, are sometimes uh, displayed in a rotating exhibit, but most of the collection can be seen online. Visit our website at hawaiipublicradio.org for a link to the online collection. Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring the Ukiyo-e print series displayed one at a time throughout the year. HonoluluMuseum.org. We just heard about President Truman's fondness for Aloha shirts, and we continue to explore other presidential ties to Hawaii. Pearl Harbor's chief historian, Daniel Martinez, visited the Truman Museum there in Independence and was surprised to learn of that Hawaii connection. It was fascinating because I had no idea that the president had collected that kind of thing. Harry Truman does not strike you as a Ren Spooner type. And, uh, but he, he, there's a lot you learn at that library about Harry Truman. Um, because he's a distant past. It's, he's my f mother and father's past, my grandparents' past. And everybody remembers the monumental decision he has to make. Everybody remembers he inherited World War II when Franklin Roosevelt died. And so when you go through to that museum, it's a cavalcade of the history from him participating in World War I, uh, uh, you know, just a country kid from Missouri that ends up in France. And he's a, he's a captain in our artillery. He's a man of consequence. And um, he, they see a future in him. And politics in Missouri is different. It's very local. It's sort of like here. A lot of people know you. And uh, if you, they know you and you like you, they'll support you. And you're one of them. And he was the most unlikely candidate to be vice president under Roosevelt because Roosevelt was going to live forever and almost did. And uh, to have that befall him and all the complications of not only that at that point the war, they knew they were going to win it. The question was the peace. How was that going to happen with all the factions like the Soviet Union, the French, the British? the United States, how do you deal with Japan, China, 
two Chinas that were emerging, you know, two politics of that would resoundly change Asia. And so he's caught in this cauldron, and in the museum is panels that take you through these tremendous challenges, changes, uh, victories and disappointments, and a, a very simple family, one that's more open, a young woman who's his daughter, who is piano player, attractive, uh, kind of nobody knows about her. And they're finding out that the Truman family is far different than the presidential family they had known for almost two decades. So you, you really get a, a different side. And the, the first thing that greets you when you walk in is this uh, uh, sign that was on his desk and how appropriate in these times that he believed the buck stopped here. And you can actually buy replicas of it there in, this, in the books, in their, their kind of bookstore, uh, gift store. And um, his, his remains are in, it's kind of a circular presidential library and there's a courtyard area and, and it's a very simple grave. And there's an eternal flame to, of his spirit there. And it's designed beautifully. And it is a venture of discovery because most people today haven't a clue who Harry Truman is. Well, it must have been a, a real kick in the pants for you just to see his shirts. <laughs> I know. It's, it, it also touched upon the idea that Hawaii is not that distant. Hawaii is, um, is uh, this kind of, in a way, celebratory icon. I've always thought of people come here because it's their dream, the visitors that come. And now that's a dream of people from Asia and all over the world to come to paradise. The real question is, and, and, and a lot of his local historians have asked this, what is paradise? And what is paradise at a price? And for, I think, local Hawaiians, I think it's certainly a question that revolves around that politics of memory. And so it, it is a... a uh, I think a, a very, as one author wrote, a, a very strange place, especially for the outsider that comes. And if they take the time to understand the culture and explore the possibilities of points of view, it can be a wonderful experience, sometimes painful, but sometimes celebratory. Talk about the president's connections to Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. The president's visits to Hawaii were at first uh, based on not necessarily coming to visit the people, but to visit the military. And certainly Franklin Roosevelt was every bit part of that. He made, uh, I believe, two visits here, and one prior to the war and one during the war. And general planning for the fall of Japan was in the final meeting between Nimitz, MacArthur, and, and the president. Hawaii found itself a crossroads for the presidents, in particular for overseas visits. President Kennedy, he was the first president to come here to Hawaii, not the, like in the sense the first president, but the first president to visit the USS Arizona Memorial. And he was part of the second string of presidents, I, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, that were World War II veterans. And it went on, Nixon, Johnson, Ford, Bush, all of those World War II veterans, every one of them, both Republican and Democrat, and all of those crossroads uh, from the White House to Hawaii, they met those. And Jimmy Carter was actually stationed here. Yes, Jimmy Carter was part of the submarine force, a Navy commander. Uh, I looked into some of Carter's stories, and, and the only place where the one thing I couldn't find out was his billet. And I wasn't sure if he was with his wife at that time. I looked at the area where they'd be, and that's, that's right up on the hill where above Makalapa Hill. But there's also bachelor quarters that are located in the submarine area. So that's yet to be determined about that. It was a, a short stint for him, but he certainly was here and, and commanded a submarine. Obviously, he was one of Rickover's boys. And if people don't know who Admiral Rickover is, get to Wikipedia as fast as you can because it's one of the most fascinating characters in the Ameri modern American Navy. He was the father of the nuclear Navy. And uh, the shadow of that is stretches across the landscape 
at Pearl Harbor, even to this day and across the world. It is our main deterrent. And so Rickover handpicked all these individuals, and he saw something in Carter that he wanted, and he got him. Yeah, the, the Jimmy Carter visit is interesting. You know, a lot of presidents passed through here on the way to the war, and determining when and where they came through. Uh, Kennedy's boat came through here. The PT-109 uh, ported here on its way out to the Solomons. And, uh, and you know, that PT boat was built on the uh, east coast of the United States. He did his training there, right there in Newport, and the facilities are still there, right south of Newport, where all these PT boat skippers who would have these incredible plywood boats that are over 70 feet long and at high speed at attack the enemy, scary stuff. Uh, and of course, Kennedy's legend grows with the collision with the Amagiri in, I believe, 1943 in the Blackett Straits. So when you think about that, you think about other types. And as presidents, when they started to come, it was pretty evident. Teddy Roosevelt came here by proxy. And I say that because he was the one that sent the great white fleet around the world. And it was very interesting because he, he met the, the fleet up in Washington State before they started out across the Pacific. And he actually feared that the Japanese Navy would be lying in wait for them and sink them because of the, what had happened with the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War. That didn't happen, but those fears were there. But the president had sent the fleet, so in a way, President Roosevelt, by proxy, went around the world as influence and did stop in Hawaii and did salute the people. That fleet saluted the people of Molokai as the, as the people with Hansen's disease were there and they paraded by and there had been a request to do that and it happened. So there is a lot of that kind of American influence through the presidents. And then you start seeing the presidents come here and the first president to come to Hawaii was during the World War II and that would be Franklin Roosevelt. I might have missed one and I couldn't find out about President Harding and others that might have made here, but they're certainly the most celebratory ones, the ones that were of notice and on purpose was the president coming out here and doing an inspection of the military facilities, went to the airfields, went to Schofield Barracks, was it, was it the, you know, the naval base at Pearl Harbor, inspected the fortifications and guns along the south coast stretching from Diamond Head all the way out to Eva, went out to Eva. Wow. So he got a full inspection, was at Eva Field, our endangered battlefield out there. A and so he left his mark more than any president. Franklin Roosevelt left that mark. He visited everywhere, all over the island, but it was based on an inspection. And I think when I last saw you out there, it was the big ceremony, and it was President Barack Obama mm -hmm. and um, uh, Japan's uh, Abe. Prime uh, Minister. Prime Minister Abe. Uh, and that was a big deal to have it the was, two of them there. Yeah. It, you know, I think of, of the, you know, President Kennedy's visit in 60, 1963, President Johnson's visit in 1968, Richard Nixon in 1972, and... President Ford was here in 1975, went to the memorial, very, very well photographed event. Um, Jimmy Carter, 1977, and in 1980, the National Park Service takes over management of the USS Arizona Memorial. But prior to that, Ronald Reagan, this is the real mystery. I have citations for Ronald Reagan visiting, and then I talk to my cohort in crime the historian for the Presidential Library in the California and Los Angeles area, and he has no record of Ronald Reagan at all visiting the memorial, and not even as governor. There was a citation that's on the internet in which they list some of the visitations of the presidents, and it appears he didn't make a visit. So he may be the only president that didn't set foot on the Arizona memorial? That's, tr that's right, because you would have George Bush here in 1990. He followed 1991 with his visit. Bill Clinton uh, made three visits to the memorial because end of World War II and, and that he came uh, early in his presidency with the First Lady and then later in his presidency. And then Barack Obama. I think that President Obama is the most visited because he's, he's been out there at least four to five times. He went once just with the Navy, didn't involve us, but he came as senator. I think it's curious because people often ask, What's it like to be around a president? Well, 
you get the envelope of the presidency and all the Secret Service and all the details and, and all the hierarchy within the National Park Service of the United States Navy, it's all wrapped up in that. And when he came as senator, uh, Eileen Martinez, you might have remembered her. She was chief of our uh, interpretation. Yes, I remember her. And she's retired now. But Eileen and I were told in a meeting by the superintendent and then by also the regional office in San Francisco that if you violate any of the rules, like you can't post for pictures with them, you know, you can't show, you can't shake their hands because at that time everybody's going to say, what's that all about? He was running for president, so we could not show any favoritism towards any candidate. So I had met Senator McCain earlier, but he wasn't right, running for president. But it's interesting. Very nice guy. The protocol. The, the protocol. protocol. So they say, and if you do this, you're gonna lose your jobs. <laughs> and Eileen was frightened to death. She was scared that she'd do that. So what happens is, so they come on, and I had no idea how big the party was. I thought it was going to be, you know, Michelle and the children and uh, then Senator Obama. And what happens is he brought about nine kids. And uh, so he brought all, so it was all local kind. You know, they all had them. <laughs> so, so there was a passel of people that came off. There was almost 25 people. And so uh, I got up there and uh, I was starting to do my, and the uh, Senator turns to me and he says, could you do a tour for the children? And I said, Okay, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I tell these five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, maybe an eight-year-old, about what this place is? Because this place is, you know, what it is. It's mm -hmm. a place where there's men interred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sacred, and there's men still interred in there. And and so I s talked about the ship and showed them that, and stumbled kind of through it because I was that was a curveball I didn't see coming. But that's part of these visits, you'll never see those coming because the questions may be not the ones you anticipated. And then I, I recall when Obama and Abe were there, you also had the opportunity to take them, I think, on the Admiral's yacht. Yeah, and I think probably. Caroline Kennedy was on that oh, yacht. That? And there was a, a marvelous picture of her father taking that same yes, boat. Yes, on the same, that same barge. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, the Jacqueline uh, Ashwell, who's the superintendent, was with me. And we were right there. Uh, I mean, I was there for the subject matter expertise. She was there because she's the superintendent. We were there with the admiral and, all, and he, part of his family. And this was going to be the first time the prime minister had, of Japan had ever visited the memorial. So the, the historical moment was not lost on us. And I was extremely nervous. Nervous. I mean, it's it's like this is. I had been in the minor leagues, and now I'm in the big leagues, and and I'm there to engage in this conversation, at, answer the president's questions or for the prime minister's questions. And the questions revolved about you know the, the things about the commemoration, and keeping in mind that the president had previously visited Hiroshima. So, in a way. I think, but most people don't understand there was a protocol to that. By the President of the United States going to the place in which the vanquished hold and cherish, and it's their icon of World War II, Hiroshima. And when he went there, he went there with the protocol of visiting their place that's a shrine and part of their collective memory. And by him doing that, it allowed Abe to then asked to come yes. and reciprocate. I never thought personally in my lifetime that would ever happen because the politics and the protocols were there. And for, we were fortunate that we had that kind of foresight to do that. Uh, you could see the healing of wounds. The ceremony that followed afterwards was incredible. And as you know, being as versed in protocol as well, Japanese officials don't hug they shake hands. Uh, they may clasp a hand over, but they shake hands. When I saw Abe uh, hug Everett Highland. Yeah, we, when you think of the history, you appreciate the present mm -hmm. and those moments that just bring it home. Yeah, that's an emotional touch point. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and kind of bringing this history to the forefront as we yeah. honor our presidents and we honor a very special place. Yeah, it is. And 
I think that just in closing this thing, um, that day when we were on the boat and I had an opportunity to share with President and President Abe the story of President Kennedy was going to do the first move towards this reconciliation. He had taped a program, a speech rather, to be presented in Japan that he was going to be the first president in the post-war period to visit. He was going to bring the crew, the living members of PT-109 with him to meet the captain and the crew of the Amagiri, the Japanese destroyer that cut his boat in two. And that was going to be the first outreach or reconciliation. What was surprising that it was uh, that this this speech that was going to be broadcast was going to be broadcast by Telstar on November 23rd, 1963. And we all know what happened on November 22nd. So that first step of reconciliation ended in the streets of Dallas. And so obviously it was broadcast and I didn't know that Carolyn Kennedy didn't know that. It was a moment that struck me as so unique that I was able to share something that another historian had written in, in the newest book on PT-109 that she didn't know, and I think it brought comfort to her. And that was Daniel Martinez, chief historian of the Pearl Harbor National Memorial, sharing stories about our presidents and their links to Hawaii. That is it for today. This week and next, we plan to talk with uh, Senate President Ron Kochi and House Speaker Scott Psyche. What would you like to know? Got a burning issue on your island? Maybe it's the cost of living, fears about the future, or a solution you'd like our leaders to consider. Record your comments. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, and ask away. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We are on Facebook at The Conversation HPR and Twitter at HI Conversation. And remember, you can find all our shows archived on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.